I'm Eddie Rester. I'm Chris McAlilly. Welcome to The Wait. Today, we're welcoming Kenda Dean with us. Kenda Dean uh, is an ordained United Methodist pastor. She works, she's worked in youth ministry. She now teaches at Princeton Seminary and is doing a lot of amazing work and research and writing about youth and young adults and Christian social innovation. I think a lot of people, parents, pastors, um, folks who care about young people in the community want to know what can we do to create an environment where our where youth and young adults flourish and thrive. And Kenda's angle on this is, is really kind of paying attention closely to where young people's hearts are coming alive and how they want to change the world, paying attention to that, but also uh, giving them a larger story to think about it through. Right. I think one of the things that I, I'm thinking about, and it's just, it was such a, a great and inspiring, motivating, that's, uh, those aren't the right words, conversation, but it really helped me think about how do we go where, not how do we bring in, but how do we go where uh, young adults are finding the work of the kingdom and doing the work of the kingdom, and how can we come alongside them, cheer them on, uh, and as you say, give them the larger story of what God's doing in the world. Kent has done several different things, lots of different initiatives. One's called the Zoe Project. We talk about that. One's called Ministry Incubators, and we talk about that as well. Um, she's a delightful person. and Except when she's picking on me. You, when The two of you team up on me a well, couple of times. Well, we only pick on you when you deserve it or need it. And I, so we, we just I, had to... I just felt like, um, yeah. Well, are you okay? I'm okay now, yeah. Okay. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Glad that you're with us on the wait. We are excited about this new series. If you missed the first episode, you can go back and listen to it with Becca Stevens. And um, we have a great season ahead. So go ahead and, and like it, subscribe so that you can be following along the journey. Leave, leave a review as well. Your reviews can help other people find the podcast. Life can be heavy. We carry around with us the weight of our doubt, our pain, our suffering, our mental health, our family system, our politics. This is a podcast that creates space for all of that. We want to talk about these things with humility, charity, and intellectual honesty. But more than that, we want to listen. It's time to open up our echo chamber. Welcome to The Wait. Well, we're here today with Kenda Dean, and we are delighted to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Kenda. I love getting to be with you again. Yeah, we've it's been several years since we've been together in person, um, but you've continued to rock and roll in in your work. And you were saying before we got on um, that you guys are starting classes today. <laughs> yeah, a few things going on today. That's this is true. This is true. <laughs> well, we appreciate we appreciate <laughs> your time. I, I think I came across the first maybe the first book of yours that I came across was your book um, Almost Christian which kind of is a deep dive into um, what's going on with our kids and how they transitioned from adolescence into adulthood or emerging adulthood as the literature talks about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder, kind of, could you give folks maybe who don't know your work um, a bit of context in kind of how you got interested in those questions um, around youth and young people and, um, and you know, young adults? Yeah. Well, I mean, the way I got interested in it is probably the way everybody gets interested in it. You know, I had kids. Mm. Also, I had been a youth pastor for a lot of years, and I teach youth ministry at Princeton Seminary now. So it's a it's an ongoing, you know, conversation about 
you know, how, how young people are experiencing the church and how they're experiencing faith and whether or not the kinds of work that we're doing in, you know, the Christian education youth ministry world is making a difference or not. And the thing that we have that we didn't have when I started in youth ministry, like 30 years ago, um, we have data now and Mm -hmm. the data is distressing in a lot of ways in that, you know, it's basically, it says that an awful lot of what we do in the name of um, faith formation forms a lot of good things with young people, but what it doesn't do is form faith. Faith is something that tends to happen in the context of families and congregations and adult mentors, but to the extent that formal youth ministry makes those things possible, then it's useful. But um, by and large, we're forming young people who do a lot, who get a lot of good relationships with adults and get a lot of good moral background and so on in congregational ministry, but an awful lot of it misses the mark when it comes to being the source of faith formation. So what we're doing now is trying to figure out what it is that we ought to be able to, ought to be investing our time in with young people, given the fact that there are models of youth ministry that we have relied on for a hundred years that turn out not to be as useful as we thought they might've been. Yeah, I was a youth minister for 10 years. Uh, so uh, we should be in some sort of uh, post-traumatic uh, <laughs> group together, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. But but as I look back on my 10 years of youth ministry, and, and most folks looking at it would say it was a successful run at youth ministry. Uh-huh, yeah. But now, all these years later, some 20 years later, I look back and still have relationships with these kids but the vast majority of them don't have a relationship with Jesus or the church. And what right. that tells me is that as much fun as we had and the great trips and the great moments that we had— You were... sucked. <laughs> wow, wow. He's just coming right at me today, right at me. It, it's early—we're we're recording this one kind of early morning for us, so— I mean, we just have to call it call straight, it, right, yeah, Kendra? I think, well, yeah, I mean, call yeah. a thing a thing, right? Call a thing a thing. Wow, now Kinda's on board too. The, uh, <laughs> well, I, and I think you talk about it in the book that what we do, and you said it just a second, we, we, we do a lot of good moral formation, but not a lot of Christ formation. There's a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, I think the term moral therapeutic deism. So say a little bit mm-hmm. about kind of that and why that was part of the missing of the mark that, that I did and maybe a lot of other youth ministers did over time. Well, first of all, I'm not sure that we can attribute it to what youth ministers do or don't do directly. There are a lot of cultural forces that are creating our religious sensibilities, right? Right. So moralistic therapeutic deism turns out it's shared not just it's by it's it's a problem in all faith communities, Christian and non-Christian. And it's kind of a flattened, homogenized, be nice. Um, it's you know, moralistic. Um uh, feel happy, feel good about yourself. It's therapeutic. And it's deist in the sense that um, God is sort of hovering out there, but is not an actively engaged force in our lives. So that's the default religious position um, that was discovered by the National Study of Youth and Religion more than 10 years ago now. Um, that's the default religious position of American teenagers. But what we've found out it's it's even more diabolical than that it's not just it's not because kids are misunderstanding what they've been taught in church and what their 
they've been taught by their parents. It's basically because this is what we teach them. Mm. And in fact, if you, the, the, the kind of flattened, um, homogenized, you know, lowest common denominator, what helps us all get along. I mean, that's a good thing that we can all get along, but it shows a profound um, lack of deep understanding of the theological truths of our traditions. Because in fact, the deeper you go in your tradition, the more we appreciate each other in our difference, not the more we get divided. We, we misunderstand how that works, but really, truly understanding a religious tradition um, helps you become more um, accepting of others, helps you become more prone to appreciate people no matter who they are, as opposed to setting up walls between people. Um, so it's a, it's a cultural reality. It's not just something that's happening with young people. Young people, of course, are always the canaries in the mines, right? So right. they are the ones that we, we kind of see it in front of us in a very unvarnished way. And what they're doing, though, is holding up the mirror to ourselves. So this is something we share as a culture. It's a form of acculturated faith. That is an old sin, <laughs> you know, that goes back to the beginning of time. And, um, you know, we just confuse our gods is what mm. it boils down to. Um, and we're a little afraid to claim the God that we say that we claim. Right. Um, because a lot of what we have been taught about religion is is actually not true in terms of the religious teachings themselves, but are the way we have come to interpret religion as a culture. And that is as something that divides us rather than could bring us in, not unite us in the sense of homogenizing us, but unite us in the sense of being able to genuinely appreciate others. Right. Yeah. If you're a parent and you're struggling with some of these questions, or if you're a, you know, a pastor, youth pastor or whatever, um, you know, the book that I'm referring to of Kinda's is called Almost Christian. And in the background is a bunch of research. Um, and the the person at the center of that research is Christian Smith. And we did a uh, right. an episode last, uh, last season with Christian Smith. You can go back and find that one and go, you can take a deep dive on all of that if you want to. Um, but um, but yeah, we want to kind of push forward. I know that Eddie maybe had another question. Well, I think that begins to to branch us into what we want to talk about today. Is that I listened to a great uh, lecture you gave at Fuller, and in it you said uh, something along the lines of Christianity has not made enough of a dent in the world for people to notice. And I think as we talk about some of that research, what you discovered yeah. is that we've become so homogenized, so flattened that the distinctive of who we are and how we're called to live uh, can't be seen. We're not living that in such a way. And, and so what you begin to call the church to in a lot of your work in the, in the, you know, the last five years or so is really a lot of innovation that we can't continue to do and think about church and faith formation in the same way we have in the mm -hmm. past. So how, tell us a little bit about that journey for you, where you've moved from the writing and the research of Almost Christian to kind of this new call to the life of the church. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people who who know me are like, "Wait, did you leave youth ministry?" And I'm to me, no. That's the reason why I got interested in social innovation is because if young people were not going to, as you as you noted, you know, um, we work with these kids and they are great, lovely humans. And mm -hmm. 20 years later, um, 
the church is nowhere in their lives. So my question was, okay, if they're not in churches, where are they? And it turns out that they're not necessarily aban- they're cert- they're not abandoning God necessarily. It, they're not uh, even abandoning their good feelings for the church they grew up with. Um, what they are is abandoning an institution that feels like it doesn't matter. And so they're taking either with or without some form of faith, some do and some don't, into the world in a way that they deeply want to make a difference in. You know, they want to matter. They want to have a purpose. The church calls that a vocation. But for some reason, even kids who grew up in, in you know, congregations and faith communities often do not make the link between this impulse they have to, to make change happen. And we're in a world where that is an absolute guiding principle for Gen mm-hmm. Z and even some um, millennials uh, that it, we began to see these trends towards a deep commitment, not just to social justice, but to actually taking the world and trying to change it. Right. Um, there's a kind of a balance between despair in terms of hope for the future because they don't see a lot of hope. And that's a direct result of um, there's a link between a lack of having a faith perspective and the amount of hope that you have. But it's also a result of this youthful idealism they have that, you know, maybe there's time, maybe we can be the ones to make it better. And it's a very pronounced impulse in most young generations, but it has become a defining mark of um, millennials and Gen Zers. So I'm, what are they doing? They're trying to figure out ways to make the world and life together better for people, which, you know, once upon a time was the job of the church. Right. And that is a part of our history that we easily overlook. We, um, one of the things that I do in a book that is coming out, um, it's called innovating for love, but, um, it's, um, we trace how the church got so insular and how we move from being, an enclave of people who were ready to be mobilized for the common good to becoming a very insulated, quote unquote, holy community. And that's a sociological trend. It's not a theological one. In fact, it it is counter to most of our theologies. So um, we're trying to break out of that as churches, but we're going to learn that from young people who have been quite honest in saying, you know, that thing that you're doing that you call church, that's not moving the needle. I'm going to go someplace that moves the needle. So um, they were in this thing that didn't have a name back then. You know, it's we now call it social innovation or social entrepreneurship sometimes, or a, a bunch of other things like that. But um, they're trying to find ways that they can create a pocket of the world that makes a difference. So they're deeply involved in you know placemaking and sustainability movements and. Um, you've seen all of justice movements. Uh, this is, these have religious significance for young people, even though they would not call them religious significance, those movements and those domains provide young people with a lot of the same things that churches have wanted to provide young people with for a long time, meaning belonging purpose. Those are three things the church ought to be really good at, but in fact, young people are less apt to find those things within congregations than they are in these other domains where social innovation really flourishes. Isn't it the case that um, 
This isn't just a matter of the church screwing it up. I mean, I think it's also a, a part of the issue is that uh, corporations and brands know this about about us um, and are creating not just products for us to purchase, but they're creating all kinds of ways that we can onboard, you know, uh, and construct meaning, belonging, and purpose uh, through their brand. You know what oh, I mean? Sure. And so I think. Yeah. I feel like, you know, the other day I was, um, you know, I got some, you know, I got dinged by, you know, I followed a number of papers, have subscribed to some. And then I did this, I did this um, thing where I stopped subscribing to all kinds of stuff, but people still send me, you know, emails. And so uh, the New York Times is one of those I subscribed to when I was a student, but I don't subscribe anymore. And they um, keep sending me emails and it was like, you can send us money. And we'll do this thing in the world that's right. going to make the world better. It's like, you're yeah. doing the same thing we're trying to do, like through missions. And it's like, yeah, I see what yeah. you're doing. You know, you want my whole yeah. life to be built on your brand. And it's like, yeah. um, there's, I don't know. I feel like that's part of the story. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's when, when you do the work of the church without or I think, I think this is probably true of other religious communities too, but I'll talk in terms of Christian communities. When you do the work of the church without the story that the church is built on, it becomes kind of a free-for-all, right? Mm. It becomes unmoored from whatever, um, from the center that we claim um, as Christians of being Jesus Christ, and the center becomes the product or the process. This is the problem even with the innovation conversation. And one of the things that I'm trying to figure out, I, I mean, the, the way we throw around the word innovation is both meaningless and dangerous um, because it becomes the idol, right? We become so interested in innovating that we forget who we're innovating for. Right. And so, you know, we you need a, you need a story that you belong to in doing this. And when the story centers around something other than than God, then we have you know, an idol factory going on. Have, have and you, that is, that's sorry to true. You. It, it's just true across the board. It's not just true of um, youth and youth ministry for sure. Have you seen this book Dominion by Tom Holland, how the Christian <laughs> revolution remade the world? Have you seen that one? I haven't. No, Th- tell me about it. So it's this guy, have you seen it? Eddie? I haven't seen it. So I came across it uh, before Christmas. I haven't read the book, but I'm, I want to. It's a. It's this guy, he's British and he, he grew up in a, a cultural Christianity and through time became a journalist and has written a mm-hmm. number of books about the ancient world, particularly like Greece, Sparta, et cetera. And, you know, he, he um, has written this book kind of tracing, I guess he, he's very interested in the classical world, but the more he gets to know about it, he sees how foreign and kind of barbaric it is. Mm. And mm-hmm. what this book, Dominion, it traces the ways in which Christianity as a, as a religion, as a culture, as an, as an ideology, how it, it um, really remade the Western world. And so a lot of the things that we think of as yeah. just general and universal ideals of, you know, any number of things, equality, charity, charity, justice, yeah. et cetera, that, yeah. that we think of as just like, this is what it means to be human. They actually have deep Christian roots. And in fact, without Christianity remaking the Western world, the Western world would have been far more bi- barbaric is kind of the basic thesis. And, and well, it's just, yeah, and that, I think that's a really important point because this whole innovation conversation, which is scary for a lot of people 
um, the church started as a social innovation movement. You know, this was the way you lived out. This is the way you showed that you were a follower of Jesus. You did life differently mm. and you did life differently with others. Um, the Christians were the ones taking care of people during the bubonic plague. And there, we have all sorts of, of resources that talk about how the emperors of the time, Emperor Julian was humiliated by the fact that the Christians took care of people better than the pagans did. And that people saw that and that, and that made a difference. And it's that difference. It's that upside down nature from the society as a whole, the barbaric society as a whole, that I hope the innovation movement can help us reclaim. I think about, uh, as you talk about, uh, you know, how the Christians upstaged the emperor, uh, Emperor Julian in particular, I, I start thinking about, you know, the, the Christian colonies uh, that went to England uh, to try to convert uh, the Celts. And one of the, the threads that I think that we see in this is that there's a lot of risk and there's a high tolerance um, for failure at a time when failure often meant death, mm-hmm. loss of family, um, loss of uh, social capital, uh, loss of place in the social structure of the day. And, and you know, I'm, I'm just thinking a lot of things right now. And, and one of the books that I read a long time ago uh, was The Innovator's Dilemma. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, by Clayton Christensen. Clayton Christensen. And it, he, what he says is that as, uh, as, uh, as groups get successful, they fail to innovate simply because they don't want to risk too much. They don't want to fail, but already they are undercutting their future because they're failing to innovate. And, and I feel like maybe as an institution, Christianity somehow reached that place post-World War II. Um, and it became too, we became so risk averse and wanting to be free of perceived failures. And I think about your work with the Zoe Project. And one of the things, if, you, if folks want to look at this, well, before I try to mess up telling them about the Zoe Project, mm-hmm. why, why don't you, <laughs> since, you know, since you're a part of the Zoe Project, it would make much more sense for you to do that. Yeah, it's fine. We're, we're now getting into a, a phase of that where we're trying to d- distribute our findings a little more broadly. So Yeah, so tell us um, a little about the Zoe Project and what y'all found <laughs> and how it relates to what I was just talking about. So, sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, the Zoe Project is was one of a number of innovation hubs that the Lilly Endowment funded over the last five years that um, was specifically geared towards looking at how congregations could innovate with young adults. And Picking up on this idea that young adults are the absent demographic from congregations most of the time, and congregations by and large, you know, view them as an exotic species that they spot from time to time. Um, I was there. There was one United Methodist conference that actually, at one point, the clergy had what they called a spotted owl society, which was all their young clergy because they were so oh, rare. <laughs> they were an endangered species. So we we tend to view young adults in that capacity rather than as collaborators or as um, instigators right. of ministry. And um, so the these innovation hubs were all over the country and they all tried various ways to do that. And ours was focused on looking at young, how young adults are finding meaning and purpose and uh, belonging in these domains that they assign sacred worth to, but they're not churches. So sometimes they're very explicit about you know, the space is sacred to me. Um, sometimes they're little like mini churches or um, 
they have some congregational connection, but most of the time they were kind of um, the adjacent communities to the church. They were the farms down the road. They were the maker spaces in the community. They were, they were places that young adults found community. They often found deep meaning. Um, they found a sense, they, they, their gifts were validated in ways that they didn't. And what they didn't have was a, was a story that that all belonged within, right? The way mm-hmm. um, Christian communities would put that all in a story. But they experienced those as profoundly important spaces because they were getting this building blocks of identity from them. Those were things that churches should do. But what churches do is they wrap it up in a story where all of those things make sense and they kind of are decentered so that you're focused on God and others rather than on yourself. But the building blocks are out there in other places. And so what we found in the um, Zoe project was. I guess our hunch was that God's not waiting around on churches to make mm. a difference with young adults and communities. Um, but churches are necessary to become the people who can put those building blocks together into a story that makes sense. And that takes some of the pressure off by focusing on what God's doing rather than what we're doing. So we looked at young adults in all sorts of different places. Um, and uh, we had one um, event we called Cultivate, where it was a camp for young adults, right? We had it at a farm that's part of our, our campus. And we got, there were like eight spots for uh, young adults to come and do a week of vocational discernment on a farm. And um, we got more than 200 applications for that. Wow. So there's a hunger out there. And that's one of the things the Zoe project confirmed, as did the other projects that were part of this innovation of initiative. Um, but um, what we learned was, and, and the other thing that we learned is young adults are far readier to lead in faith communities than churches are to give them the keys. And right. we, we treat them as people in the waiting room to our own peril. Um, these are people with great capacity for ministry, great interest in making a difference in the world, great interest in a lot of the things the church has to offer. They may or may not be familiar with all of the theological ins and outs of churches, um, but they're they're not enemies of the church. They just are looking for one that makes a difference. Well, and they, they have the ability to communicate into the world in a way that the church, they've got that bridge that the church doesn't have as well. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to learn from young adults on this. That's what we did was we we set ourselves at the feet of a bunch of young adults leading in these other spaces. Some of them were very blunt about what the church did and didn't mean to them. But all of them were involved in things that the church wants to be involved in. Um, So what we have to figure out how to champion what God is doing outside of churches with young adults as well, not just expect them to come to us. Yeah, I see dangers kind of on, I see opportunities on both sides, but I also see some dangers on both sides. So if like one, sure. of, one of the issues, um, one of the issues that Christian communities can get themselves into is kind of an insularity or kind of a bent towards, let's, pre, a, a bent towards preservation. And, you know, clearly like the world is broken in all kinds of ways and we need to maintain our, our kind of posture of, of, purity or holiness or kind of how, however that gets framed up. 
And so that would be one problem, like the problem of insularity. On the other end, it's, it's like, all right, so now we need to engage the world. We need to engage these mm-hmm. kids. They, you know, you know, they haven't been properly, you know, discipled, catechized, like whatever the thing is, but they have, they have an intuition about how to engage the world that we need to pay attention to. Um, you know, I think, you know, remembering at that, at the point in my life where I grew up in the church and then kind of was like, well, maybe I need to do something outside the church. I started looking at, at NGOs, nonprofits, all these different kind of spaces where, where that stuff was happening. And I was in Atlanta at the time. So, uh, the Jimmy Carter center was kind of a big cultural reality for young people of, you know, here's former president, Jimmy Carter, who's doing global truth and reconciliation work, you know, building houses all over the world. He's just doing a lot of great stuff. So there were these people coming from all over the country to be there, but, mm-hmm. but they were coming out of secular context. You know, they were coming yeah. for, they weren't coming out of uh, kind of a deep faith tradition. Some of them were, but not, not all of them. And one of the things I noticed in that environment is just the danger of, of despair and mm. burnout. Like, yeah. you yeah. know, you run up against the kind of problems that the Jimmy Carter Center I say the Jimmy Carter Center. It's just the Carter Center, but I always called it the Jimmy Carter Center. They, we know who you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's it's these massive global issues. They're complex. They're deep. They're historic, and there's no they're intra- A lot of them feel intractable for a young person who's doesn't know exactly how to you know. So you, you your desire to to make a difference bumps up against the reality. Right, and right. and so what ends up happening without a story, uh, without a some kind of a eschatological vision of how there's another actor that's going to make this all turn out right, you know, you end up, you know, without hope, you know, and it's right. the danger of just not having hope. And I feel like how to navigate this, like not insularity, but also not kind of engaging in such a way that you lose hope. I feel like that those, you know, there's dangers on both ends. I, how do you... How do you navigate that, I guess, as a leader? And then how do you create spaces where where young people can kind of think through that stuff? That is, yeah, that's so important, Chris. The, the I don't, there's no magic bullet, I don't think, that we know of on this, right, part. But I think that leads us to the place we start, which is humility. Um, because, yes, the problem with all of this innovation is we actually can't fix these problems by ourselves, um, by ourselves as humans. We can, we can move the needle some, but we, you know, as soon as we help one family get on their feet, who might be, I don't know, an immigrant family who we're maybe we're helping to give them housing or whatever. There's another one. I mean, there's the ongoing need is a relentless part of the human condition and so coming to terms with that is one of the tasks of young adulthood, right? And you're right. The the relationship between hope and faith is one of the was is one of the key themes that came up in the National Study of Youth and Religion. The kids who were highly devoted had markedly more levels of hope than kids who did not, the moralistic therapeutic deist kids. And it was a stark finding. And what we know now after years of watching these kids grow up, we know that those um, inclinations they have as teenagers only become more pronounced as they get older. Mm -hmm. So the problem of despair is a real problem with um, the generation of people who are coming of age right now. Um, So, you know what, first of all, here's what I think we don't do. 
which is what we all are inclined to want to do. <laughs> we can't fix them. We're not supposed to, they are, they come, you know, they come to us as whole human beings, right? It's not mm-hmm. the church's job to take them by the collar and make them look like us. But what I think we can do a better job of doing that we haven't done, which is profoundly life-giving, is to be able to say to a young person, look, you know that thing that you're doing when you go to the farm, for example, and um, when you are out there and you are, you know, I see you singing as you're, you know, in the garden or whatever, to be able to say to them, when you are doing that, when you are dancing, if you're a dancer, when you are doing this thing that you kind of lose yourself, you get in a flow zone with, what the church can say is, I see God in you when that happens. Now, you might not see God in you, but I do, because that's, you know, as a Christian, my what I do is I look for places I think God's at work, and I think God's at work when you do that. Hmm. So what that tells me is I'm supposed to help you. I'm supposed to champion you. I'm supposed to come alongside you in some way. So, you know, how can I, how can we as a faith community help with this garden? How can we help, you know, help make you a better dancer? How can we give you opportunities to share this gift? What we're doing then is we're we're in confession mode more than converting mode, hmm. which is a really important change that all, all missionaries have to learn, you know? Um, but we're not very good at it when it comes to working with young people. We want to say, oh, we know the answer, and that is to have faith like we do, and to do the things that we do as faithful people, and then your life will be full and whole. A, that's not true, and B, it's really annoying, Mm. and nobody wants to be reached. They do want to be neighbored. They do want to be loved. I think that's a shift that the church—we struggle with it because change is just hard, but it's a shift the church hasn't had to make for generations. You know, Mm -hmm. we've— you know, through the 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s and early 90s, you throw a, open a church somewhere, people will show up and they'll do the same church thing, maybe a little different music, but do the same church thing that their grandparents did. And things shifted. And COVID, I think, has really shifted things for us in the life of the church. I've, I've quit calling it the post-COVID world, I call it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's the, because I don't think that's the reality. Yeah. But I, I think yeah. the reality is that the world created by COVID, the world yeah, created oh, by like COVID that. is significantly different for the church. And if we ju- if we think that we're going to go back to the way it was on in February of 2020, um, and if that's our hope and that's our mark, I feel like the the church is going to uh, well. We're just going to the, the mission's going to suffer, and so this shift of converting to confession, I think, is significant. What is what does that look like for the church in this COVID created world? What might it look like? What are you seeing? Well, one thing I'm seeing is something that really look. There were a lot of ways that COVID may have been. I mean, it was a shipwreck for sure. Mm-hmm. But it may have gotten us on a new shore that um, we were heading for anywhere anyway, but we got there fast. And now we have to figure that out. And I think on balance, it could be really good news for the church. 
Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think one, one of the things that happened during COVID was that we got stripped of all our programs. Right. Um, let me talk about youth ministry in particular, right? Everybody knows that youth ministry is about relationships, but almost all of us who do professional youth ministry and even a lot of volunteers spend most of our times developing programs. And then we spend the rest of our time convincing young people that they want to come to our programs. Now, when COVID hit, you couldn't have the programs. We tried online for a little bit, didn't work real well. Mm -mm. Some did some better than others, but everything we got, we had to kind of go down to the baseline. The only thing we had left to us was building relationships, nurturing relationships, coming alongside each other, finding ways to be, you know, for one another in a time that was, you know, really hard for many people. That is an absolute return to fundamentals when it comes to ministry. We had to learn how to do ministry again. And I think that's a good thing. We will have to come back at more than half, <clears throat> pardon me, 58%, I think, of churches after um, the reopening last year had shut down um, a number of fellowship programs, a number of their um, gatherings for obvious reasons. But if you talk to a bunch of pastors, if you talk to a bunch of lay people, there it was a relief. Mm. I don't have to keep all of these balls in the air now. I can focus on what it means to actually live my faith in a different way. And um, it became kind of a laboratory for that. So I think that's a good thing. And we might find some uh, new and possibly streamlined, possibly... Um, more um, fundamental forms of ministry coming out of that. I think part of what I hear in, as a church leader is uh, just building up some resistance to return to the 73 things on the calendar approach <laughs> yeah. to ministry each day. I, you yeah. know, I think one of the things we've discovered here is that the amount of time that in this COVID-created world that people will give to the church each week has shrunk in the space that our culture, even in the South, will give away to the church has shrunk. Uh, Wednesday used to be high holy night for church stuff. There are mandatory events for our youth and kids on Wednesday nights now outside the church. And so, sure. so I think, you know, how can we fo laser focus who we're called to be and how we're called to provide meaning and change in the world. I've, I want to ask, you know, I think it's easy in, at this point in the conversation to then say, all right, so what are we supposed to do? Right. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't want to, I want to resist that. Um, and instead kind of ask Kenda, if you could help us think about um, what are some key questions that you, that, that you think are important to continue asking and you know, one of them is what needs to be killed? You know, what, what program <laughs> needs to die, yeah. you know? And I think that's an important yeah. one. What are, what's something that we've, we just have made assumptions that it's going to be part of it that need, that we might need to. A kinder way might, might be to say to not pick back up rather than. Yeah, that would be a kinder way. That'd be a kinder way. I'm going to stick with my. Yeah, but you know what? what needs, we're, we're in a dying and rising kind of business here, right? Yeah, yeah, Thank yeah. you, Kendra. So I'm a, 
Thank you. I'm well, okay with the dying twice, language. Twice now y'all ganged up. <laughs> Here we go. And so what need, yeah, yeah. So I guess what, what are some other questions? Um, if you're trying to get into the mindset of, of doing a form of missional innovation and you want to try to reimagine kind of what a church should look like, what are some of the questions that, that you think are important? Well, the, I think the question that we always have to start with in any kind of ministry, right, is who, who are we doing this for? You know, you know, are we, first of all, are we doing this for God? Are we doing this for us? Are we doing this because we want to grow or survive or any of those things? Or are we doing it because this is the call that God has put before us? Um, the other for, way of talking about who is who is who out there has God put on our path that, you know, is, is someone we can bless, Right not someone that we can get to come to church, someone we can bless. And to start with a particular human in mind, you know, um, I know one church that uh, they, they decided to really take their neighborhood a lot more seriously. And there was a, I think it was a hair salon, a little mom and pop place um, on the corner of the block where the church was. And the church had like a thousand bucks in the budget that they were going to devote to some of their mission work. And they decided to just give this hair salon a thousand dollars. Now that was a very simple act, right? They could have done a million things with that money, but they decided to give it to this little, little business on their block. It transformed their relationship in that neighborhood because now this church for no good reason, just thought they, they saw God in the people who were in that shop coming into that place. And they're like, we want to champion what you're doing. We think what you're doing is, you know, you're, you're part of what we see as God's work. You might not frame it that way, but we do. And we want to support you. So just here's some money to do whatever you need to do with it. And also, you know, let us, you know, be your neighbor. Let us figure out how we can neighbor you well. And, um, you know, it transformed a lot of relationships because nobody expected a church to be for a hair salon. And yet, it was a great example of the church being for a community, being for others. God for us is the way Catherine Mowry Lacuna put it, um, a theologian. And I think that the God for us, God for communities, God for humans um, is a pretty good it's a pretty good path to be on. Hmm. I love that. Um, yeah. So who, who yeah. are we doing this for? Who out there has God put on our path that we can not just ask to come to church, but that, can who, who can we bless? How can we take our neighborhood more seriously? And how can we demonstrate in a tangible way that we are for people um, yeah. so that they see that God is for them as well? Any, any other questions come to mind? Those I think are really great. I'm okay with starting with those. Me too. Me too. That's what I thought too. <laughs> <laughs> um, where do you see, I guess, where do you see hope? Where do you find um, uh, a sense of, um, you know, w- what keeps you from despair? I, there's a lot, there's a lot of bad news out there. What do you, what do you see that makes you hopeful? Well, you know, I, this is a standard youth ministry response, but you know, anytime you work with young people, I work with students all the time. They give me hope every day. But I also, um, I use, I've, I've come to use this image because a lot of people, um, 
ask me, you know, what do I see in the future, particularly where, when it comes to youth ministry? What do I what what do I see? What next big things on the horizon? And you know, I I've learned to to scan the horizon for that kind of thing. I don't see a single big thing coming, but I've come to think about what I what I do see as Dunkirk. I don't know if you saw that movie or mm-hmm. remember your history. I remember the history, yeah. But, you know, where there's this scene in Dunkirk, you've got all of these soldiers trapped on the beach. And if young people are trapped in this place on this shore that they just need to, they just need to get home. They just need to get home. There are a thousand little tiny experiments coming over the horizon. And, you know, not one of them is going to do the trick, but all of them together can help get those kids home. It doesn't matter what boat they get on, right? What matters is that they get on a boat and they're all heading in the same direction and they're all ultimately trying to get people home. So I think we're in an era of small experiments. That's pretty typical for an era of innovation. And I think those small experiments are going to lead us to a good place. That's a great image, I think, for us to end with today. Kenda, thank you so much for all your work and your hopefulness for the church uh, and your love of the church and your work with, uh, with students today. So um, thanks for spending some time with us. You bet. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, the best way to help us is to like, subscribe, or leave a review. If you would like to support this work financially or if you have an idea for a future guest, you can go to thewaitpodcast.com.